Hey everyone, welcome to a special 50th episode of the Utah Royals FC Show. Since day one, this podcast has been about sharing and articulating our love and passion of the beautiful game, but it has also been about increasing the visibility and awareness of women's soccer while highlighting the discrepancies and equality between the men and women's games. It is our honor to commemorate both the 50th episode of the podcast and International Women's Day last Friday as we discuss the concept of women's equality with Carla Swenson Haslam, the former voice of Utah Royals FC, and her incredible spouse, Dan Haslam. In this podcast, we tackle some tough issues, which should probably make the average soccer fan feel a little uncomfortable, but they are important to talk about nonetheless. Thanks for tuning in, and while you may not agree with everything that we say, we appreciate the engagement and welcome further conversation, so feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, as well as our SL Soapbox. This is the Utah Royals FC show. Thank you so much for listening. All right. So we are here with Carla and Dan Haslam. Beautiful to have you two along. Thank you. We are so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited. Thank you. Now, oh, we are equally as excited, I'm sure, Megan. Definitely. It's been too long since I've gotten to talk to these two. <laughs> it has been way way too long. You know, off-season is brutal, you know? Like, it really sucks the life out of you, and there's nothing better than the start of a new season and kind of getting back with our URFC community. For real. Everyone pretty much knows Carla. A lot of people know Dan. But Dan, for those who don't know you, do you want to talk about yourself a little bit? Sure, sure. I'll, <laughs> definitely, I'll definitely share a little bit. Other than than kind of my presence on Twitter, retweeting Carla and, and everything that's going on there. Um, I'm currently just finishing up a graduate degree and working at Nuvi, doing some data analyst stuff, things like that, looking at trends in social media and data analytics. But I am an avid soccer fan. I am not good at soccer, but I, I try and do my best. I, I absolutely love the sport and watching it. I fell in love with it while living in Panama for two years and then really just took off from there as, as I came home and and got more involved in watching Real Salt Lake and the Real Monarchs and then eventually the Utah Royals. So um, definitely love soccer and try and watch it at every opportunity. I'm really glad there's another person here who is also bad at soccer. <laughs> oh, I'm bad. I used to play and now it's just not good. So Carla's probably the only one good of the four oh, of us. I doubt that. I doubt that. Carla's the pro here. No, I'm in, hor- you, I'm in horrible shape. You don't know how quickly you like don't go running for a week and you're in bad shape. And I haven't, I haven't played soccer in so long. It's just, my lungs just give out every time I try to run. I can do some Same, futsal. but that's because, you know, I've never been in shape. So <laughs> I can do the futsal. That's minimal running. <laughs> no, I love futsal. It's so fun to play. I don't play it hardly ever anymore, but I used to. Futsal is fun. Futsal is fun. Anyways, so um, the real important reason we're having this podcast is to commemorate um, International Women's Day, which was last Friday. Yeah. And there is no better person, I think, to talk to about um, women's empowerment than Carla Swenson Haslam. Well, I greatly appreciate that's quite an That's quite an honor. <laughs> yeah, you bet. I mean... Yeah, you you juggle a lot, and it 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 really shows that you're passionate about the things that you care about. And um, when we talked before, you know, it's really evident that 
you know, you and Dan have some great conversations about these issues and how to solve them and ideas. And so it's going to be really fun to talk about gender equality, gender inequality, particularly in the beautiful game and um, some of the things that can be done to change that. So I will just let you two take it away. No, definitely. You're right. It is something that I am very passionate about. Um, and, and it's something that I kind of fell into, you know, just playing soccer growing up and then playing at the collegiate level, playing for the U20 Columbia national team. It, I kind of fell into having a love for soccer, but also having a love and an awareness for uh, the women equality movement, especially in sports. And so, and it's been fun to be able to have Daniel as my kind of partner in crime as we go on these adventures and as we have these discussions. And I think, I think it's important to mention before we get into the real meat of the show, um, that some of the, some of these things talking about, talking about equality, talking about how we achieve equality, talking about how we achieve, achieve diversity. Uh, sometimes it can, these can be really difficult topics to talk about. And my hope is that through this podcast, we can talk about things that are difficult because they are important. Um, I know Daniel and I, we have these conversations frequently and we, uh, we both agree on equality, but sometimes we disagree on how we get there. And I'm, and I'm completely open to that because I think there are multiple ways that we get towards the ideal. There are multiple ways that we reach that, I guess, equality that we're looking for. Um, and so I think it's important before we, we get into the podcast to recognize that these things are difficult and that we may disagree on some things, but that it's important that we have these conversations because that's what's going to allow us to move forward and to progress towards our goals of, of equality, of diversity, what, you know, whatever those goals may be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we maybe before we go into a little bit more about how to solve these issues, should we just briefly talk about some of the um, inequalities that we see in terms of salary and the U S women's national team lawsuit? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a very, uh, <laughs> it's a very hot topic right now. Um, and I'm, I am interested to see where it's going. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to, um, actual read the actual complaint. I've only been seeing on, uh, seeing, keeping up with the news, like on Twitter and social media, as well as the newspaper, but I haven't been able to go in and actually read the public complaint that they file. And so I'm interested to go in and kind of read that and see if it expands to more than salary, because I know some of the concerns of the U S women's national team were more than just the pay that we're getting, but also a bonus system, uh, playing on turf was a controversial issue. Why, you know, the men's team does not play on turf, but the women's team does so frequently, uh, especially when there's so much science behind it, uh, stating that uh, playing on turf is bad for your joints. You know, some of these other things, stipends, food stipends, I, I know these have always been on points of concerns. So I think it's important to remember, too, that this inequality lawsuit extends to far more than just salaries, right? Because salaries, you can easily make the money argument, uh, but playing on turf and stipend and some of these other elements, you can't always argue, well, we make more money. And so I, I am in- interested to see how this lawsuit plays out. I am interested to see if it'll end in a settlement. I, I have a hard time believing that U.S. soccer is going to carry this for the next several years. So I am interested to see at one point it ends and how it ends. Definitely, definitely. And that's a great point because it is so much beyond the base salary. It just happens to be that the base salary is probably the easiest thing to measure. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. oh, go ahead. 
No, sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, I, yeah, I agree. I think that's also the thing that grabs the most attention because that's what we see in the news most frequently outside of the sports world is uh, closing the gender gap between men and women. And so I, I think we see that, that same kind of argument penetrating into the women's uh, world. Obviously, you have critics from both sides uh, arguing that it's not viable simply because the men, or excuse me, the women aren't consistently making as much money as the men. And then there are proponents of the opposite saying that that shouldn't matter. It should, the bonus system and the salary system should be based the same. And so you're right. It is, it is an, the salary talk is a very much an evolving argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as we look at the salary, we talked about this in a previous episode, but the Total salary for the Utah Royals FC team as a whole stands at $350,000. So that's a minimum of $15,750 and a maximum of $44,000. Yeah. So when we look at, I mean, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Paulo Ruiz doesn't, you know, keep this in mind or, um, you know, has been, you know, vendetic about it, but he makes half the Utah Royals salary and he's played like three games for RSL. Yeah. Yeah. $180,000 is what he makes. And so when we look at these discrepancies, it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's really, um, it's when we look at these sticking points, that's when we see, really, I guess, the the point in suing the Federation. Because I think that what the U.S. Women's National Team is that they realize that there is potential for there to be a trickle-down effect because they carry a lot more social capital than the average NWSL player. At least that's my take on it. No, I totally agree with that, Virgil. I think they realize if this movement's going to start, they kind of have to be the ones to push it off because as far as women's soccer go, you don't get a much more powerful team than the U S women's national team. And if they're, if they're going to try and make anything happen, it's got to be them or it's just not going to get the same attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think to this point, something that's interesting is yes, there's a large discrepancy in salary, but I think that trickles all the way down to how the sport is shared, Right. How much is it on TV? How much is it on the radio? How much is out there as far as exposure? Because something that I I found while working with women's collegiate teams while I was in college is we were just never talked about. It, it made it very, very difficult to get fans because all of the media dollars, all of the advertising dollars were spent on the men's side. Um, and I know that makes it difficult. When I was working for Real Salt Lake a couple of years ago, it was in the very beginning of the Real Monarchs. And it was tough for me to go to businesses and try and sell sponsorships because they weren't known yet as much because they weren't out in the news. There weren't articles about them. And I think that first beginning with a way to kind of amplify the coverage will help in all these aspects. Something that I I read today as I was preparing for this podcast is although approximately 40% of sport and physical activity participants are women. Only 4% of all sports and media coverage is received by female athletes and female sports. And you think of that from an advertising sponsorship perspective, how are you ever going to be able to bring in the revenue if there's not as much exposure and not as much um, kind of display of, of what's going on? 
that's a mind blowing statistic. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's too bad to, to see that because I mean, it all, it, it will all start on the perspective that we share and something that I did with Nuvi where I'm working right now in, in social analytics and social media is I've had a real, or excuse me, a Utah Royals a monitor, social monitor set up since they started and watching the conversations on social media as they switched from, okay, there's no broadcast or one week to, okay, we're the game of the week another week or we're on the KSL stream the next week. As there was more exposure, naturally, there's more conversation on social media, which naturally will inform more and more people of the sport, of the players, of how they're doing when they're winning, when they're scoring goals, different things like that. And I think that just helps everyone get to know who the team is and what they're doing. And, and I think definitely there needs to be more effort into sharing stories and sharing coverage of the team. Definitely. So, um, Carla and Dan, from your perspective, we look at obviously that, um, media outlook is going to fall with the sort of collapse of this lifetime deal and that broadcast going away. Yeah. What do you two think of that? You know, we, so you'd mentioned bringing up salaries, right? Uh Uh-huh. And to be honest, like the salary is connected. The money that is being made is connected to your exposure. Uh, You know, if you're getting an immense exposure, you're going to be able to justify asking for more money. And I think that's one of the strong arguments that the U.S. women's national team is going to be able to make in their lawsuit is our exposure is great. Um, Compared to the men's team, the U.S. women's national team has has great exposure among the soccer community. Now, the question is going to be if they want to win that lawsuit and if they want to increase their salaries and work towards gender equality, which I think is an admirable pursuit, uh, they're going to have to find a way to increase that exposure to non to to people who are not soccer fans uh, and that's always the biggest difficulty so when when you don't have a broadcast or when you don't have the same sort of exposure that I think people expect of a professional sports team I think that can be very difficult uh to make an argument for um equality uh now there's other things that go into it right? Obviously, Utah Royals FC, as well as the other NWSL teams have to look at their own uh, financial situations, have to look at their own marketing goals to determine if that's something that they want to pursue. Uh, but but that being said, it, it, it is hard to gain exposure, um, especially because a majority of money is being made off of your TV rights and your TV deals. I mean, and, and to compare, you know, let's compare it to something, to, let's compare it to the, the Utah Stallions, the AAF football team, right? It's a male team playing football. So you would think that the popularity would be immense, right? Because here in the United States, football is king. Um, And yet when there's difficulty with exposure and coverage, you see the numbers going down. So I don't even know if it's as much a woman's problem as it is just an exposure problem. Interesting. Along those lines though, then, why do you think that, um, you know, in this, this probably goes sort of delves into the conversation that we were going to have about masculinity and femininity. Uh, why is it that women continually don't get the same exposure as men? Hey, that's, that's, a, that's a hard one. Um, that's a hard one to analyze because I watch, I love to watch women's athletic events, 
right? Like I, like I absolutely love to watch women in all sorts of sports, not just soccer. I mean, I mean, Serena Williams is like my idol, right? Like if I could be anyone, I would be Serena Williams. Cause I just think she is incredible. Right. And I, and I can't swing a tennis racket to save my life, <laughs> but, but the point is I, I, that's hard to say because I think for people who are interested in women's sports, they love it. They are, they are all in. They are diving in head first. They love it. They're wearing the jerseys. They're buying the season tickets. And that's awesome. I think our culture just hasn't gotten to a place where everyone feels that way, which again is so, which, which is so sad um, because of the people who are there, you know, such as yourself, such as, such as myself, such as Daniel, it's such an incredible experience. I mean, you get to experience both men and women excelling at the highest level and being elite in what they do. And so I really think it is a, it's, it is a cultural, it's a cultural dilemma, um, simply because you're getting quality, but in both games, in both, in both men's and women's sports, you're getting quality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that, Megan or Dan? Uh, Daniel, you go ahead first because you're the guest here. They care about your opinions more than mine. <laughs> no, that's definitely not true. Um, but what I think, what I think's going on is, is unfortunately, it's taking time. Right? It takes a while. Like with the Monarchs, it took some time for that popularity to grow. And, and with the Salt Lake Stallions, right, it may take a couple seasons for people to jump on board and get excited about having a pro football team. Um, what I think has definitely helped escalate this is what's happened in college with Title IX. Um, and I think it'll still take time for that to grow. And as that continues to grow, that should hopefully pour over into the professional scene. Um, just a couple of, I love statistics, as you can see, and <laughs> like that. So something I saw today is before Title IX, there were only 2% of female college students participating in sports. And now today, we are up from 32,000 female athletes to 150,000 female athletes, right? And that was because of Title IX and kind of paving the way now for, for women athletics and things like that. And um, that it even goes down to high school where it says before Title IX, young women were 7% of the students participating in high school sports. And now young women are 41% of students participating in high school sports. So I think it starts right as we continue to grow in high school athletics, female athletics to college female athletics. Hopefully that can continue and we're able to see more viewership, more popularity, more support as more and more females are playing sports. Their families are watching. They're getting involved. Something that was interesting is my dad, he's a soccer fan. I mean, he's not... Um, an avid, avid fan, but he, he likes to watch soccer, right? He came to, to some of Carla's games and watched. He's been to RSL games with me. Um, but when I took him to the home opener and he saw the Royals on the field, he said, wow, this is really good soccer. This is more exciting than the men, right? He loved to see the, the physicality, the speed, not as much flopping, right? Different things like that. So for him, he was just saying like, wow, this is really awesome. I had no idea. I think, again, it goes back to how do we bring that exposure and show the, the product to not just the fanatics, but to some of those more passive sports fans. Yeah, that's, that's, that brings a good point, because I, I do think that if people who don't generally consider themselves soccer fans were to go 
to a Real Salt Lake or a URFC game, I think they would actually really enjoy it. Because we hear stories about that all the time where I didn't know much about soccer. I didn't really care much about soccer, but I went to a game and I became a lifelong fan. And so I, I think Daniel's nailing it on the head. I don't know why there is this discrepancy outside that it's just a cultural difference, but I do like to give uh, people, I do want to give people the benefit of the doubt that if they knew and if they went to a game that they would probably really like it. Well, I mean, that's exactly what happened with me when I became a Real Salt Lake fan oh, eight years ago. It was just a friend of my dad's took us to a game and we've gone to pretty much every single one since like I think that's a huge part of it is word of mouth if we can just get more people to be at these uh, like these events and these games it's eventually going to spiral into something as big as Real's gotten because Real's you know no different they started out small and have gotten better over time and I think if we can just get people to realize women's soccer is just as impressive as men's soccer, if not more sometimes, in my opinion, the majority of the time. But I know people like to differ with that. But like we can get people out to these games. It's just going to take time. Yeah, yeah, because I, I do, I, I, I can think of so many people who really did enjoy it. And the thing that's interesting to me, and again, I, I apologize, I don't have an answer for this because you asked me why is there the discrepancy. And outside of cultural differences, I'm not sure. But the other thing I don't know the difference is there's a lot of girls who play soccer, whether it be at, you know, the local city teams or whether it be for the local club teams, you know, even competitively, and yet don't end up having a team like a professional team. And that's always, that was always crazy to me growing up, played a lot of competitive soccer and then ended up playing at the college level. And you'd ask girls like, who's your favorite premier league team? And they like, wouldn't have one. Or you'd be like, how many RSL games do you go to? And they'd say, oh, I haven't been to one in a couple of years. And it was like mind blowing to me because I'm like, you play soccer. Like soccer is your everything. Like, why aren't you supporting these teams like avidly, you know, like ferociously, like this would be your team. And so, and again, I think it just comes back to like culturally how we define supporting teams, how we associate with that. Because I remember when I was living in Colombia, I mean, your team is is your everything, right? Oh, like, yeah. it, like like it split families apart. If you were, if you two were, if you know, and another member of your family was a fan of the opposing rival, like it, like you didn't talk to that person. Right. And, but that just demonstrates that it's so deeply embedded in the culture. And I just don't know if, uh, if your everyday citizens, even those who play soccer have, um, have gotten into that yet gotten to a point where their team that they support is a part of their identity. That's that's a great question. That's a great answer. And I think that um, that's something that I've really noticed with Real Salt Lake. Um, I grew up personally watching the Feyenoord Ajax rivalry. Um, you know, the, which is the, a great rivalry. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you see, you know, as unfortunate as it is, you know, people getting killed in that rivalry. Um, you know, uh, other fans not even being allowed to go into the other stadium, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause there's currently like a 10 year stadium ban. And so you look at Utah and that culture is definitely not there. Oh but, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I mean, I mean, we don't want it to get violent, but oh, I, I, see the point yeah. you're making. I get mm-hmm. the point that you're making is it's, I, people don't associate it with their identity and we can argue whether that's right or wrong right? You can argue whether that's healthy or not, but the, but that's, that's part of where the difference comes in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the, the creation of the riot and the unification of the supporter groups will help with that. But, um, 
Go, yeah, going back to um, another point that I want to make that I think is really interesting is, so if memory recalls, the overlap between season ticket holders for um, RSL and URFC is like 20%. And there's huge chunks of fans that support URFC, but they're not really into RSL. And there's a huge chunk of RSL fans that don't really care about URFC. Yeah, it's and, interesting. Yeah, and you know, you throw the Monarchs into that, and it gets even more confusing. And so I think the question to be answered with that, I think especially when the main goal is to achieve equality, is to find out how to get that base that supports RSL or the monarchs that doesn't quite overlap support URFC. Yeah, and I think I think the the Royals are doing a great job, but I still think there's plenty of work to be done, right? I know the the people over in the ticket office are doing everything they can to target these youth soccer and these rec teams and to really get these young girls that are learning soccer and their families out to a game to really show them, hey, these are role models. These are examples for these young girls. And as that happens, I think it'll kind of be like my experience growing up with junior jazz, right, where I played basketball. I wasn't good, but I played and we would get one ticket a year to go to a game and we would go. And that kind of helped me as a little kid start to learn and grow and and be a fan of the jazz where unfortunately now it seems like um, kids kind of pick the best teams in basketball to be, to be fans <laughs> of, but whereas as a young You're boy, the jazz are not the best team. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but I think, I think as they continue to market to these families and these, these young girls and show that, that there is, there are next steps to soccer, right? You play as a little girl in the rec league. Maybe you can play for your high school. Hey, once you play for your high school, maybe you can go on and play for some level of college. And then you're always looking up to these role models who have kind of gone through that journey, starting where you started in rec soccer and made it onto a World Cup stage. So I think it's finding those different angles to really target those kids and, and really turn it into a family environment that is built around women's sports and helping these girls have role models. So maybe I'll ask Daniel a question. I'm switching the podcast roles here, but Do it. under that model, we're assuming that it's going to take another 20 years for women's soccer to receive the same sort of popularity. We would may perhaps give a men's sport. Um, do you think there are faster ways that we can speed that up or is it focusing more on youth and hoping that they grow up to become uh, fans? Well, I think it's not, it's not only just getting the youth to be fans, but Something that happened when we, when I was with BYU as a student working with the women's basketball team, we didn't focus on students as much, right? Because they were attending all the men's games. We didn't focus as much on just people in the community. We tried to go to those youth basketball teams. And in return, they'd bring their parents, they'd bring their aunts and uncles. They would go to a game. They would all have a great time together. And that helps the parents see, hey, this is fun. I want to continue to bring my daughter to this event where we can have fun together, where she really actually enjoys the sport that's happening on the court. It's the sport that she's playing. She can look up to these girls. She can meet them after the game and get autographs and create these wholesome role models that are both in athletics and as well as, as really good human beings. So I think it's really trying to create a system that brings mothers with their daughters and even fathers with their daughters to an event that they would like, because growing up, it was a lot easier for my dad and I to go to jazz games and to enjoy it. Um, but if my sister came to a game, she wouldn't enjoy it as much, right? Or maybe she would have enjoyed a women's soccer game more looking up to, 
to a female playing a sport. That's a fantastic point. That's a fantastic point. And it's interesting because when we look at the NWSL, we saw that in, you know, after the 2015 World Cup, there was a massive jump in the amount of interest. And so hopefully this year is um, another opportunity to hopefully allow that to grow. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Yes. (laughs) No, especially, I mean, we always see it with attendance at Real Salt Lake games, right? When it's a World Cup year, people show up, right? That's when you get those kind of fans that are, on the fence, they're sports fans, but they're not necessarily avid soccer fans. But during the World Cup, right, your mind's on soccer and you go to matches. So I think the marketing team, I'm sure right now, is is getting ready to go and figuring out every way that they can leverage the World Cup to bring out some of those fans. Well, and like how incredible that so many of the women that are going to be on the World Cup play week in and week out at Rio Tinto Stadium. Right. And it's like that if if you can, if somehow we can relay that to fans that look, the same women that you saw scoring a game winning goal against Brazil in the World Cup, like that same woman is going to play at Rio Tinto Stadium every single weekend. Right. Like sometimes I, I think people take for granted that the, the level of skill and talent and world class that is, that is playing at Rio Tinto Stadium almost every week. Well, yeah, speaking of on that, just I, my photography teacher at school is a soccer fan, but he's not really a Royals fan, kind of like you're saying. And we were talking about it the other day, and like I was explaining to him, like, you look at our team, we've got U.S. internationals, Canadian internationals, Scot- Scotland internationals, like all these internationals. And he, he even said it himself, he didn't realize we had though that caliber of player playing in Utah every single weekend and for somebody like him who follows soccer pretty religiously I he's told me about articles he's seen on soapbox before and things like that and even somebody like him doesn't realize what the caliber we have here and I think RSL's one the Royals media team is certainly trying to do that part but it's definitely something I agree with you Carla they need to emphasize like these world-class athletes are playing in Rio Tinto every single weekend for six months of the year yeah and to that point that goes back to what we were talking about before we need the media out there to share these stories right to move that from being four percent of the stories shared a lot higher right maybe to 10 or 15 or even higher to show those people that that open up the Deseret News and are scrolling through the sports section that they can say, oh, look, these World Cup players are playing this weekend here and and really creating that connection. And that, I think, goes back to the marketing side and taking some of these players to the high schools, to different events, to elementary schools, right, and putting them out in front of people so they can see them in a in kind of a real-life atmosphere. This is a normal person, but then they're able to see them playing for the U.S. Women's National Team and really creating that fan relationship. Looking at, you know, getting getting people out and getting people to come to games is is huge. But I think it still begs the question of structural issues, you know, because even after the World Cup, as of last year, you know, Carly Lloyd is still taking ice baths in a you know, in a makeshift garbage can after Sky Blue practice. And so there still remains this question of how do we resolve these more structural issues? And I really don't have an answer to that. I really would like to, but I really don't think there's an answer to that. Yeah. Um, to take the more radical card, and while I definitely agree with um, you know marketing and all these other things, I think there is still, um, and I'm sure that there are several listeners out there that will disagree with me, 
maybe some of you folks, but I still think that there is very blatant sexism in terms of um, the rhetoric that we use to describe um, the different types of athletics, the fact that, um, you know, this debate can go different ways, but the fact that women's soccer uh, has to exist, that we have to dichotomize it like that. I think that there are um, some very real things out there as to, I think, particularly biological arguments. You see that when you're reading the comments on the um, the articles about the U.S. women's national team. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And so I think that um, even if we can, um, you know, fix some of these salary issues and fix some of these representation issues, I still think that there's a structural interrogation that has to happen that's going to be really complex. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be extremely uncomfortable uh, for, I think, a lot of people to have those types of conversations and have those types of um, interrogations within the social structure. But it's something that's going to have to happen, and I think it's going to have to happen simultaneously as we talk about all these really important things, uh, you know, like the marketing and like the salary and like the TV deals and all these types of things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's a combination of, of all of that. So I, I agree with you. I think, I think there is a level of sexism and then I think there is a level of just culture, uh, where, uh, I, I know we, on, on Friday, we had discussed a little bit of, um, implicit bias where people aren't sexist per se, Uh, But there is this level of implicit bias of what do I want to spend my money on? Oh, perhaps I'd rather spend my money on a men's sport, right? Where people aren't coming out as explicitly sexist. And yet there's these little biases that end up, I think, affecting women. Um, I do think, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I do, again, I agree with the cultural aspect of it. And then I I think, I really think a lot of it comes down to money, right? I, you know, as much as we get on Sky Blue and as much as they're harped on, I like to think, and maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I like to think that if they had the money there, they would be doing things differently. Agreed. Right? And, I, and I would say the same things for some of the other, for some of the other teams. You know, I, I have a, I've been able to meet a lot of these owners while working with the NWSL. I've been able to meet a lot of the staff and they're people who legitimately do care and legitimately are proponents for equality and women's soccer, but it's a matter of money. Um, and so, and so I think it's a lot of things. I, I, I do think there are a, a handful of people who are just flat out sexist because I have seen that as well, but I, I think a majority of people just don't exactly know how to approach it. Um, because there isn't like the money there. And I think the goal, and I think what we should be looking for, and as we see in this lawsuit, which again, I don't know how the lawsuit is going to end, um, I'd have to really, really think about it and see how it pans out. That being said, I think it does make a statement, if anything. Uh, Daniel and I had a long discussion on this just the other day, you know, discussing what arguments do you think are going to be their strongest, what arguments perhaps are not the strongest. And if anything, I think it makes a statement that we did not come here to play. Um, and, and for that is it's admirable. I think my hope is that that starts to influence other women's professional sports. And now I'm starting to get off on a different tangent, You're um, good. but as you can tell, I've this, it's something that I, I just am really, uh, I think it's good to make that statement. Uh, I don't, again, I don't know what's going to happen, but even if 
U.S. Women's National Team does not come away with anything, which I don't think will happen. I think there will be some sort of settlement deal with U.S. soccer. Um, but even if it doesn't work out, there is some sort of statement that I think encourages women um, from other fields. I know I know on International Women's Day, I went to a I went to a party. It sounds funny, but I went to a party with some of my other law school um, classmates who were also celebrating it. And we spent a long time discussing how women's tennis we're bringing it back to Serena Williams here, but uh, how women's tennis has changed their ranking system where um, it used to be that if you got pregnant, you just knew you would never be ranked again because you would have to take a year or two off. And so women were delaying having children because they didn't want to ruin their ranking. And then when they did have children, it was a sacrifice that they had to make. And now uh, it's been, the rules have been changed where your ranking is not eliminated just because you are out for a year or two. And see, these are little things that perhaps aren't getting the news coverage that they deserve. But I think that, I think U.S. women's soccer in the lawsuit, I think all these little things are slowly going to move away from that, those cultural and implicit biases and are going to make it, are going, are going to make it more possible for franchise owners and for big sponsors and for fans to really bring forth the attention and the money that would allow for equality. 100%. And I'm so glad that you bring that up. I think particularly with pregnancy, because I feel like a lot of times, obviously it's, you know, it's well known that oftentimes, you know, women will sacrifice careers for, you know, for children and, um, you know, it's hard, right? Yeah. And, and there's dozens and dozens of women who come back, but it's, but it's so hard. And and it, there's part of me that thinks it shouldn't be that hard. Exactly. Right? Our culture and society should be one where that is welcomed. If a woman decides that she wants to have a baby, you know, that is something where we should be, we should be a conduit for her to come back stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think um, the story of Amy Rodriguez playing for the Utah Royals is so cool. Yeah, it's stellar. She's a wonderful example. Well, and you look at like Sydney LaRue right now, too. She just posted the other day about her being at preseason, five, I think, maybe six months pregnant. And she got so much backlash for that. I'm like, if her physical therapists and all of her athletic trainers are letting her have practice who are we to tell her she can't do it like how is how is that fair as somebody who's never met her knows nothing about her life knows nothing about her pregnancy to say that oh well she's pregnant and she's a woman and she's so she shouldn't be having practice right now like that's just another example of somebody who's already had one kid in her professional career is about to have another and will probably still come back knowing her as a as an athlete yeah no, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's people making assumptions based off of old traditional views, old cultural views of what it, you know, I use air quotes, what is right. And, and you're completely right. It's just not people's place to make those assumptions. Definitely. And I think that um, this is really kind of a neat place to tie it back to this idea of implicit bias, because, um, you know, even though, you know, going back to this, you know, this interrogation of sexism that I talked about, I definitely agree that there is a um, a lot more implicit bias than there is blatant sexism. But I think that that really sort of plays into the way um, that people approach pregnancy too. You know, they think that 
um, like women are fragile, they're, they're not capable of coming back from a pregnancy and being phenomenal. And, um, you know, as we just brought up, Amy, you know, A-Rod and Sydney LaRue are excellent examples of that. Tough as nails. Yeah. Yeah. I think of my, I think of my own former teammate at BYU, Michelle Murphy Vasconcelos plays for the Chicago Red Stars. She started almost every game last season. I mean, was an absolute stellar, stellar player for the Red Stars. I mean, I, I, I played soccer with Murphy and I knew the minute she got pregnant that she was going to come back stronger than ever because that's just who she was, right? She's a fighter. She's a hard worker. And, and it's unfortunate that I think it's unfortunate that not everyone sees it that way. Mm-hmm. Not to say, not to say that I'm the ideal, but if you, if you've ever met Michelle Vasconcelos, you knew that she was going to come back fitter than ever, stronger than ever, because she just had that drive to win and having a baby was not going to get in her way. Yeah. Something, I know this is kind of taking us back to where we were talking before, but I was thinking more about, okay, how can we create better conditions, better environment, better opportunities for the NWSL and those players in sky blue. And what came to mind was thinking about the WNBA and kind of their structure and how they have made it work. Obviously they're not where they want to be, but they're closer, right? They're doing a lot better. They all have great arenas to play in. They have sponsorships, they have TV deals and rights. And I know part of that is obviously facilitated through the NBA, but I believe that as the MLS grows, hopefully we can see a better partnership that does allow for some of these teams to have better venues to play in, to have these stronger TV deals, to have even higher salaries and more opportunities there. And I know that'll take a long time, right? The MLS is a lot younger than the NBA. And we saw the WNBA almost kind of fell and almost disappeared and that the NBA was able to come in and help at some point. Obviously, um, there's still more to do with the quality with the WNBA and the NBA, but I think it's steps. And I think it's going to be difficult in the short term for some of these MLS clubs to embrace um, an MWSL team based on expenses and personnel and things like that. But I think as teams do that, and hopefully there can be more encouragement from the MLS front office to encourage these teams to to join and and create a relationship with an NWSL team. But I think that ultimately will probably be what brings the most success for the NWSL. Yeah, which which in itself is a controversial issue because you'll talk to some players in the NWSL and they'll disagree. They'll say, no, we need to be our own freestanding team. Uh, We don't want to be associated with an MLS team. And then there's some players who think they do. So it's very something that I think splits a lot of NWSL players. That being said, it's not a bad way to start. Regardless of where you fall in the line, uh, having the backing of an MLS team is not a bad way to get a foundation. One example of that is, is you look at the WNBA team that's in Seattle. Yeah, the Seattle Seahawks or Sonics moved, but that WNBA team is still up there playing in Key Arena and, and keeping their fans. And they've, they were able to build an environment, build a fan base. To, even when the NBA team left, they were able to self-sustain and be able to continue. I think the hardest part that we're seeing with the NWSL is how do these teams start? How do they build that foundation, not only with attendance, but also financially to be self-sustaining to where they are able to do it on their own, to where they can be completely self-sufficient. They don't have to rely on these MLS teams. And, and hopefully that's 
where this this conversation and direction can go as these as the women's national team is vying for more opportunities and conditions and pay that hopefully the MLS can find a way to say okay how can we create an environment that helps each other right cuz we know the men didn't make the world cup last year and that definitely did not help the MLS with attendance and everything like that so how can the MLS lean on the women's team being in the world cup to help bring soccer awareness attendance and everything to the men's side so i do think there are opportunities for the two to work together and obviously it's easier for us to say but hopefully those conversations can be had that's a fantastic mm-hmm. point and it's really interesting um, when we talk about the idea of association with a men's team because never in my lifetime you know as a lifelong jazz fan and as a lifelong uh, you know, RSL fan, never in my lifetime did I ever think that Salt Lake City would have, you know, quote unquote, a big market team, which is what the Utah Royals are compared to a lot, and a lot of other places in the um, NWSL, because there is that association similar like there's with Portland. But on that note, Carl, I'm really curious, what are some of these uh, arguments for separation? I think it's, it goes back to the equality Right. It's this idea that we if that we deserve and and I do think deserve is the right word to use simply because of the amount of talent and the amount of time and the amount of energy that these women have put towards their careers, the amount of sacrifice that they put towards their careers. They should be on their own freestanding. Um, a lot of NWSL teams believe that they should be their own freestanding team. Um I think I think the system of having URFC with RSL is in, is great. To me, that's the ideal is having an MLS team and an NWSL team who have their own facilities and their own locker rooms and yet are part of a parent team. For me, that's the ideal, I think, because especially as a fan, I get to be a part of both. But I that but there is some discussion out there of uh of having a separate and unique team simply because they have been a lot, there has been a lot of sacrifice and there has been a lot of time and energy that is put into getting to this point. And so I I completely understand that you want to have your own freestanding team. I completely understand that. Um, I just think from a fan's perspective, it's so much fun to have an MLS team that you love and an NWSL team that you love. Yeah. And to that, I think part of that discussion could be like when I was growing up and I training wheels on my bike, right? There came an age where I said, I don't need the help. I can do this on my own. I think that's where some of the teams might say, hey, we don't want to have to to rely or have an MLS team that feels like they're backing us. We want to do our own thing. We want to show that we're self-sustaining, that we can be our own team, our own identity, that we're not lost in the shadows of, of the MLS side. So to Carla's point, I think right, it's, it's difficult to tell what, what works better and what doesn't because we've seen in Portland and here – Right, that relationship definitely helps, um, but hopefully, some of these groups that aren't associated, and if they're unable to create an association, hopefully, they can build those unique fan bases and groups to to kind of be their fans. Definitely, definitely. I was wondering about that too. I'm glad you asked Carla about that because to me, it's always just made sense. Like these NWSL teams get get them off their feet a little bit and be a part of an MLS team. But I didn't think about it from a player's perspective that they might want to 
feel like they can do it on their own because a lot of these women in this league are very determined to make this their career. Obviously that's why they're playing professional soccer. And I had never thought about it from that perspective that maybe they're just like, wish that we were in a time and place that every NWSL team could function entirely on their own, as well as Portland and URFC do with their MLS affiliate teams. Yeah, and and I and you would never want for NWSL teams to feel like they're in the shadow of an MLS team, right? Like you would never want that because exactly. it's not the case. Um, and but I I think Daniel's I I had completely forgotten, but Daniel's I think example of Seattle I think is a of the WNBA team in Seattle I think is a perfect example of that where they were originally connected with an NBA team, and then that allowed them to kind of get the foundation that they needed. So when they were on their own. They were able to, they, they did amazing, right? And, and that's not to say that you need the backing of an MLS team. I just don't think it hurts. I think, I think it provides, uh, provides a foundation and allows you to focus your resources on players and on, on building a brand. And I, sorry, go ahead, Virgil. And, oh. Well, and I was just going to say, no, like, you go ahead. because I'm the biggest fan of Real's media team one and Utah Royals media team that there could possibly be. I think they do incredible work, but that's no, not plugging you also, Carla, like love you too, but just you're not there anymore. And they've still managed to like get this all. So yeah, they do such a good job. And that's one thing that I've really was worried about when I heard that they were bringing the, the Royals to Utah as I was afraid that it would be just like they'd be brushed under the rug a little bit and it'd still just be all real all the time. But that's one thing that I think is huge in aspects of media coverage, like the whole 4% thing is to have teams like that get their media teams. And there's still a lot of issues with our media team, I'm sure, that we don't know about and some that we do. But to even just have close to the same coverage as we get for our men's professional sports team in Utah as we do for our women's professional sports teams is something that's huge to me. Such a good point. Such a good point. I think especially considering that you see that that relationship isn't always as productive as it probably has the potential to be. And, you know, I mean, no disrespect, you know, when I talk about, um, the teams in Houston or the teams in Orlando and how they're linked to the MLS squad, but you definitely don't see the show of support that you do in places like Portland and not to tutor on always tutor on Utah. Always. (laughs) Yes. And and I know teams are going to have a difficult time, right? Because budgets are set and money's not infinite. And I think that's where a lot of difficulty is, is saying, okay, these teams that are, can, are joined together, how do we allocate those budgets, right? How do we make sure that we give enough to the Royal side to help them be successful while at the same time making sure that we are doing our due diligence with the men's team, with Real Salt Lake, to make sure that we're bringing in all the revenue that's needed. So I think that's a struggle that teams are having is trying to figure out how do we make this as equal as possible while at the same time getting getting the most return we can because i think that's what is going to be hardest for a lot of these teams is where there's not as much money there's not as many opportunities to potentially advertise and push out some of this content but i know that that right carla and her team and the team that's currently there i think a lot of that can be grassroots working with the the local news stations working with high schools colleges things like that to make sure that you can find some of those free avenues to really promote Definitely. the team. 
that is something that was really cool to see in the off season was seeing Abby Smith always out at all the elementary schools with the with the Real players and just to see again just yeah I know she's so great I love Abby she's such a sweetheart but just again to see them treating them as equals even if the rest of the world may not view them as equals to have that be the culture that we're trying to build in Utah right now is something that I think is really underappreciated by a lot of the people like around the league is that like, although there's the differences in the leagues themselves that prevent the exact same treatment, obviously as far as salary cap and all that goes. And like, I'm as Deloitte mentioned before, but to be able to say we're doing pretty much everything we can to, treat these women the same as we treat our men is pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. I would agree. And it's, it's a good example and it's something that should continue to be celebrated even into year two. Mm, Agreed. Agreed. So to tie in, um, excuse me, to tie in a listener question here from Sherry and Sherry brought up a really interesting point that I agree with. Um, so she says that one aspect of the equality conversation that I'm especially interested in is marketing, which we talked about, but a little bit more nuanced is that she says, I feel like men's soccer is marketed to sports fans and women's soccer is marketed to kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sherry, for reaching out. That is a wonderful question. Um, it's actually one that I think is debated a lot too within marketing groups. Again, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, I don't think it's that marketing um, groups, and I'm not just talking about UFC, I'm talking about women's soccer in general. Um, I don't think it's that they're trying to focus on children. I think it's that right now the market research says that it's children. So they're trying to market to who they feel are their fans right now. Um, I think if the market research said that their fans were you know, men over 50 years old, then I think they would market to men who are 50 years old, right? Because that's, that's part of the marketing. Anyone who's, you know, studied marketing knows that it, a lot of it goes into market research and determining who your audience is. Now we can discuss whether that's good or bad, whether that's, you know, if that's going to hurt equality, if that's going to help equality, I'm not, you know, commenting on whether that's a good or bad thing. I just think that's why so much of the marketing is more focused on children than, say, a men's sport. Um, for that one reason is that right now that's a lot of the audience. And, and that's been a controversial issue for a long time. I actually remember um, when Alex Morgan um, was first, contra- first accepted a contract to play for Orlando, I actually remember her in a press conference making a very similar statement that we need to move away from marketing to children who play soccer and rather marketing to or focus on marketing to the soccer fans, uh, those who love the game and understand the game. And while I do think we're starting to get there a little more, and I think the World Cup will help this summer, I think market research still indicates that a lot of the fan base is still young children who, who look up to these women. I mean, it's a good thing. This is a good problem to have because it's, there's children, both boys and girls who look up to these women and who think they're role models, you know, because of the, the amount of time and, and sacrifice and the talent that they have. I mean, these are the best of the best, the most elite in the world. Um, and, and so for that reason, I think that's why you see a lot more marketing, uh, pandered towards children than you probably do in the men's game. Yeah. And to that point in marketing, there's a term called cannibalization, 
And one, one example to that is, right, you have Cheerios and you have Honey Nut Cheerios. And you present both of those options to everyone. Everyone's going to pick Honey Nut Cheerios, right? And no one eats the normal Cheerios. And I think in this case, there, where soccer is still relatively young in the United States and in Utah, I think it's even less young. I think while Real Salt Lake continues to build their very passionate core fan base, I think they need to continue to advertise to build that passionate core base where if they introduce another sport at the exact same marketing, um, you're all of a sudden marketing the same person with two sports. And if they're not an avid soccer fan, that's deeply rooted in soccer, they're going to have to choose one or the other. Right. And, and you never want that out of your fans. You want them to choose one, choose them all. So I think what they're doing, and I think it goes back to the research as well as saying, okay, what's a market or a group that is untapped that might not be attending real salt lake that might not be that core real salt lake fan and i think what they're finding is in those young women um, that's one group that's that's not filling the riot right now and i think using the angle of okay there's a real opportunity to present these girls as role models as they are right they've worked very very hard to to grow and develop their talents to become professionals and i think initially the goal is to to build that that niche market with young women that are playing soccer and hopefully that continues to grow as we talked about earlier to the the rest of the family and then eventually to that that core real salt lake fan is is they continue to build their passion in the sport that's brilliant you know on this notion of sort of the development of soccer i know carla we talked about this super briefly in the again you know don't have a word the, the preface podcast and we talked a little bit about Title IX, but yeah. when we talk about development of women in the sports world and some of these cultural changes that have affected that, what are some of those? Yeah, I, that's that is fortunately this is a good thing because it shows that we are progressing. But in the last, I, I, I would say in the last twenty years, but I, I think you can attribute it to Title IX. Since Title IX became a thing, um, sports have been cool. Right. And that sounds funny, but there was a time where women playing in sports wasn't like that cool. And now I sound like I'm talking like a 15 year old girl. But the reality is like now you go to a high school and girls who play on the sports teams, they're they're considered pretty cool. And that's not by coincidence. That's because our culture has developed one where we celebrate women who play sports. And it's interesting because you don't see that all over the world. Um, I I look back to my time when I was living in Colombia, and they're in the beginning stages of that. But there's still not this same acceptance and a celebration and encouragement of women who are good at sports. Um, And so that's a good thing. I think Title IX introduced that because women were able to get scholarships. Um, That was seen as a cool thing, the idea that you can get paid. Well, I shouldn't say paid, but your, your tuition... Your scholarship can get paid by playing an athletic event. People started attending the games because you're poor college kids. And so you pay to, you know, so it's, you can go to your, your schools, your universities, um, soccer games or sporting events. Right. And so through time, I think with time, women playing sports was considered a cool thing. Um, and that's good. That's good because I think that's encouraged it. Um, the other thing is I think there's more science that has come out in the last decade or so. And this is what's incredibly fascinating to me. Um, and not to say that people who don't play sports aren't cool, but I think you understand the point I'm making is that it's something that we celebrate. 
Um, it's something that when someone tells you their daughter plays for a sports team, you have a follow-up question, right? Oh, what position does she play or, you know, how many points does she score? Whatever the question may be. It's something that actually promotes conversation. But the second thing is, um, aside from it being something that is encouraged, that's seen as cool, that is seen as good in our society, um, I think the second thing Oh, I think I lost my train of thought. I got thinking about the cultural aspect of it. Daniel probably can come and oh, save sorry. me. I know he has an idea on the tip of his tongue. Well, no, while you're thinking of that, since I love numbers and statistics, I'm going to jump into another one that I found really interesting, that since the beginning of Title IX here in the United States, the number of high school girls who participate in sports has gone from one in 27 to one in two and a half, right? And that's massive to show like, and a lot of that is there's more opportunities now. There's more track and field. There's more sports that there are more women's sports in high schools because of Title IX in college. And I think that it really creates those opportunities for right more confidence, more athleticism, oh, and, and everything there. Daniel, see that's that's why he's that's why Daniel and I are we're totally different. But that's why we we help each other out because that's what it was. The second point is. Um, the science behind it. Um, there's more and more science that's coming out that um, girls who participate in sports, whether they're good at it or not, whether they have an athletic bone in their body or not, it's so good for their confidence. And it's so good for them socially to be able to interact with. I, I think we had mentioned this on Friday, but it's so good for them to interact with other children their age. And it's so good for them to interact with people in authority uh, positions and it just helps teach them lessons about being diligent and about um, working hard for something that means a lot to you. And so I think all of these cultural aspects from it being something we encourage to something that new science is showing builds character and makes uh, women confident, I think is what has allowed it to grow in the last several decades. Sorry, that's kind of a long answer, but we, but we got there thanks to Daniel's help. It's, it's a good answer. It's a good answer. And on that note, it's so cool. Um, and obviously, I'm not, I'm interested in statistics, but I'm not as much a statistics guy as Daniel. But I definitely think that athletics create an environment in a locus for change and empowerment, ultimately outside of athletics. Do yes. y'all want to talk oh, about completely. that a little bit more? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, completely. And I, I think of my own life, right? And and I'm not saying I'm I'm not, I'm not using myself as the poster child, but I'm no longer playing soccer, and yet I have this community around me that is absolutely incredible, and I'm so grateful for. Right? I I think of yourselves. I think of the Utah Royals community. I think of the BYU soccer community. I, I mean, I think of the club scene community. I think of the little girls that I coach individually. Their community. I mean, you have this community and support system around you that is absolutely incredible. And it's opened up so many doors for me, right? It was because of soccer that I was able to get involved in broadcasting. It was because of soccer that I met Greg Grubel, who I called, who was the play-by-play -play last season and who I was the color commentator with. It was through soccer that I even met my husband. I mean, it's through soccer that all of these doors were opened that I would not have had otherwise. And so you're completely right. I think the community that comes outside, um, regardless of now I can, you know, now I'd get to like one on a beep test and my shoes are starting to wear thin because I haven't been playing anymore, but that community is still there and it's still a huge part of my life. And I think 
um, as that continues to grow, that community will spread. It'll be like a domino effect. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's March, March 11th, 2019. I think this is my theory and there's no science to prove this. This is just what my gut says. But my theory is that in our path towards gender equality, women's athletics is going to be the forefront leader. It is going to be women's athletics and women in sports that are going to bridge that gap first. Interesting. I don't doubt you. I would not bet against that. I don't know when it'll happen. And I think a lot of things have to change before it'll happen. But I, th- I think of strong, powerful women who are going to get there first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we already see a lot of those barriers, um, <clears throat> you know, like the, um, at least in terms of while, you know, representation may not be the same all across the board. We look at the 2015 Women's World Cup final, which was the most watched U.S. soccer game in history. And we look at, um, you know, the ability um, for people like you and just people in the Utah Royals and going back to the community and how it creates these role models. And that's something that is super super exciting to see and it's going to be even more exciting to watch yeah yeah and and i think we had mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast some of these things are really difficult to talk about right and i and i i have no doubt that there will be people listening to this podcast who will disagree in some you know in one aspect or another you know disagree about whether nwsl teams should be independent they'll disagree about how we can increase pay they'll disagree that it's about money that it is about sexism and that's okay Right. And I want the listeners to know that that's okay if we disagree on exactly how we're going to get there, because what matters is that we are focused on getting there. We are focused on equality, even if we disagree on the semantics or I think the process of getting there. And what's good about disagreeing about all of this is if we're disagreeing, it means we're talking about it. And as we're talking about it, that means that hopefully we'll begin to come to some conclusions. And, And as this is talked about more and more, it should be in the forefront of, of more and more conversations that hopefully will lead to change. That's beautiful. Um, is there anything else about equality that we want to talk about before we move on to a couple listener questions? And then um, obviously the upcoming season ahead. I think Daniel's given me the nod. So I, th- I think we're good to go. Um, I would encourage all of those who are listening. If you have comments, you know, feel free to, to, Tweet about it, you know, comment, let us know what you think. Again, I think it's good to have these discussions and I, conflict does not bother me, right? I think it's good to share these ideas and discuss how we can and can work towards gender equality. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So I will ask the question that everyone I'm sure is wanting to be asked. How's law school? (laughs) Well, you may be the only one who wants to know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing you. Um, no, it's very, it's very kind of you to ask. No, it's going very well. It's very challenging. Um, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. Um, but that being said, I do feel that while it is challenging and while it takes up all of my time, um, that I'm learning things that are valuable and that can be used to help other people. And for that reason... I'm, I, I'm really enjoying it. 
and I have to remind myself of this when I have my long all-nighters where I'm writing legal briefs, but but I really am enjoying it. So thank you so much for asking because I really do appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm sure um, that it's got to be challenging both of y'all in grad school, but it, you know, it just testifies to the power couple that you are. <laughs> well, again, that's very, very kind of you. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. And, it, and it's, well, Daniel's looking forward to being done. He actually finishes this summer. So he's going to be looking forward to being done. I don't know what we'll do. We've mastered the study date. I don't know what we're going to do after he graduates, but (laughs) no, but, but it's interesting that we're talking about these things because you would think that women's soccer and law school are unrelated. And yet I'm learning things every day in my class that relate perfectly, you know, gender equality, implicit bias. I actually am um, interested in writing my significant, my significant writing paper. It's kind of like your thesis paper in law school. Um, on implicit bias and how that can influence juries. And I think we see the same thing. How does implicit bias influence fans? How does it influence sponsors? Um, And so all these things that we study that shape society, I think actually relate really well to the women's soccer and women in athletics as a whole. Definitely, definitely. So um, a listener question from Brent. What's the goal after law school? Garth Lagerway was a lawyer too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, (laughs) I'm also trying to figure out that one. I would love to stay in broadcasting. Um, I, I would love to, uh, I I think of, um, he does not call soccer games, but Mark Durant is the color commentator for BYU men's basketball. He calls with Greg Rubel and he is also an attorney and he's also a color commentator. Um, and I would love to do that same thing. I would love to get involved in, a le- in the legal profession um, and do something that is law-related, but I would, I would love to continue with broadcasting, especially soccer, since that's, that's my passion. So my hope is that I'll continue to have broadcasting in my future, um, even after I finish law school and I'm, and I'm hopefully practicing law somewhere. What are you willing to talk about in terms of a Utah Royals FC broadcast? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I I have not um, if there is a Utah Royals FC broadcast, I would love to be a part of it. I enjoyed my time. I it was an absolutely incredible experience for me. I'm very appreciative of Trey Fitzgerald, who is the man who gave me the opportunity. And he believed in me since day one. And I'll always be grateful to him for that because, you know, I didn't have this, I didn't have this huge resume of years and years of broadcasting experience. And yet he believed in me. And I think he saw uh, my potential and he saw what I could do. And I've always will be grateful to him for giving me that opportunity because I loved it. I loved broadcasting. Um, Greg Grubel is as professional as they get. He is the best of the best. He knows everything everything you could possibly need to know about women's soccer. I mean, he's was always incredibly prepared. He was incredibly helpful. He was a mentor to me during the season. And so I had an incredible experience calling the games and getting to feel like I was a part of something really important and getting to feel that I was a part of something that really mattered. And so if there is going to be a broadcast this season, which as of right now, I have not heard word of there being one, but if there is going to be one, I would love to be a part of it. And I'd love to be a part of, especially Utah Royals FC, because first of all, first off, I'm a fan and I feel a connection to the team, but women's soccer in general, I would love to stay involved in the broadcasting scene. And I would love to take any opportunities that are there. 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, and I know it's difficult, right? Because I think, right, it may have not been as profitable and it may have cost money to the team that, that that's difficult, right, when you're starting a team and, and everything like that. But as I analyzed social, when there were broadcasts, there was a lot of conversation. And I know, I know it's difficult to, to continue to do something that might not be giving you the return back that, that you hope for. But I, I honestly do believe that with broadcasting and with the broadcast for the team, that that is one of the best avenues and best channels to help attract these other fans, right? Because people are going to be watching, people are going to be tweeting about it. And the more exposure there is, I think eventually it will lead to sponsorship dollars and it will lead to continued growth in the sport. But I know it is difficult to, to continue to do something right without knowing that there's an immediate return, but I do think it, it would pay off if, if it were to continue. And to, to add to that, you know, not just some broadcast from the NWSL headquarters, the importance of a local broadcast cannot be overstated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's part of building a brand is having a recognizable face. I mean, I think of DJ and Dunny, right? They're, they're incredibly recognizable and they do a great job and fans appreciate that. Um, and it's part of the brand, right? There are two faces that I think people recognize and that people uh, respect and look to and associate with the team. And you think at the collegiate scene with Bill Riley at Utah and Greg Rubel at BYU, right? These local broadcasters, people know who they are, right? I've grown up my whole life listening to Greg Rubel broadcast as a little kid thinking I'll never meet Greg. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> there we are, right? Um, having a, a friendship with with him. And I think, right, people growing up, you're going to have these recognizable um, voices and names and it, it will help grow the sports tremendously, I think, just because of these different talents that do have followings on social media, right? Greg was able to open up the Royals to that whole group of BYU football and basketball fans that maybe didn't exist before. And right, maybe not all of them tuned in, but it does open up. It is in a way additional advertising, additional reach to an audience that maybe wasn't there before. Whatever happens with the broadcast, I think I speak for everyone um, when we as fans say that we really hope that there is one. Um, and uh, we really hope that the two voices of Utah Royals FC are brought back. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. So we have a season coming up. It's like just over a month away. We have that bye week. Yeah. But it's just over a month away. How do you and Dan feel about it? Obviously excited, pumped. Uh, but I think I speak for all of the fans in saying that. The first year is always the hardest year because you have to go through all the growing pains and all, you know, the learning and the team, you know, trying to to create an identity. And I think that was the, the struggle for the team at the beginning of the season was just having an, an identity. Who are we? What do we want to achieve? I mean, you know, and, and be realistic about what do we want? Who are we? And I think towards the end of the season, we started to see that where the team was starting to come together. And so I think the team is going to be much quicker this season in getting goals and in getting wins simply because they've overcome that that obstacle now where they kind of have a better idea of who they are and what their fan base is. So my prediction is that they're actually going to get a win um, that first game. I think it's against the Washington Spirit, I think. That sounds right. I have to go back yes. and look. Um, and I think, I think they're going to get a win, but I think it's actually going to be a big win because – 
they've found who they are and now they're just licking their chops getting ready for the first game to come and part of that too is they remember last year right the team starts we have girls all over the country all over the world coming to utah right new environment everything's brand new new team and even when they came back to the riot for home matches for a lot of these girls is it is it home even if they've been here for a couple of months right so now that they've had a chance to live here train here be a part of the community um, i'm sure they're a lot more comfortable i think now they've gotten all of of some of the the nervousness out of new environment new state new everything and as carla said we saw near the end of the year everything started to click a little bit more that's not saying there's not going to be early season um, mistakes and and things that need to be worked out. But I do think that they're going to start off a lot quicker than they did last year. Where do you think they'll finish? Ooh, that's a hard one. That is a hard one. Um, I'll give my prediction. Daniel, yeah, I, I'm like actually really thinking about this because I'm like thinking lineups. I'm thinking like statistics. Well, we'll let Daniel answer this one. And this, I mean, I might not be as knowledgeable as Carla with the team, the sport, and the league. But I will be the optimist on the show, and I will say that they will make it into the playoffs. They will make it deep, and I think they will have a shot to win it all. Ooh, damn. That will be my prediction. I'm the optimist because I'm, I'm an optimist in, in, in the jazz and all of my sports, but I think that they have a shot. I think so, too. I think yeah. so, too. Here's why this is hard to answer, okay? <laughs> it's hard to answer this because – the NWSL is so concentrated with talent that like anybody could really win it. I mean, I mean, you have your, you have your, your Portland's and your North Carolina's that are like always good, but you could tell me, Carla, at the end of the year, Royals are going to win it. And I would like probably believe you. And you could tell me, no, Carla, I'm just kidding. Orlando's going to win it. And I would probably believe you simply because it's just so deep that it's so hard um, to say what's going to happen, what's going to make this interesting. Here's where I think the NWSL championship is going to be won is it's going to be won in July and June in June and July when player, when national team players are gone, um, North Carolina and Portland. Yeah. They're the big, they're the big cheeses on the block, but they also have a lot of us women's national team players gone. What is that team going to look like when, Half of their team, I shouldn't say half, but a large portion of their team is away for the U.S. Women's National Team. Now, that being said, Utah also has quite a U.S. National Team presence. And we shouldn't, I guess, limit it to U.S. Women's National Team. I guess worldwide, players that are going to be participating in the World Cup. And so my, I'm sorry I'm not giving an honest prediction, and that's because I'm not entirely sure, simply because there's so many good teams, and they're so they're so concentrated with talent. Um that I'm not entirely sure. That being said, I think it is going to be one in June or July. That's a great Yeah, the season's that's definitely going to test the depth of the rosters, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And looking at a early season prediction, there's a, a website called projects.538.com, and they do statistical analysis on all sports. They even did the presidential election. They do... Super Bowl commercials, right? They they love to predict what's going to perform the best all over. And they've been fairly accurate. Um, and what they've picked for the NWSL, they have North Carolina with a 33% chance to win it all. Portland with an 18%, followed by Chicago at a 12%. And 
Seattle at an 11, and then Houston and Utah at 7, and then Orlando, Washington, Sky Blue following there. So I don't know if we'll have to see how accurate they are there. Yeah, um, but soccer's just a wacky sport. What's going like, to end up happening is Sky Blue is going to come, out, right? like, come and- out and somehow win it all. Right. They're going to be raging mad over the criticism they've gotten. The I hope not. Out. I know. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> I would owe Lucas Lucas $1,000 if that's Even the case. Even though I wouldn't. <laughs> oh, yes. no. You're screwed now. I wouldn't mind beating like a Portland or a North. You're right. That like that would be, that would be kind of, that'd be kind of humbling. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This website's giving sky blue a 4% chance to oh, win it yeah. all and a 23% chance to make the playoffs. Oh, huh, that's kind of high. <laughs> I feel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, top four teams. And again, as Carla said, soccer is so strange, right? You can be dominating the whole game and then little penalty in the box and you lose. Right. Vancouver so knows what that feels like. <laughs> To quote my former coworker and friend Roscoe, oh, I miss Roscoe. Soccer's wild, man. Soccer's wild, man. Oh, Roscoe, we miss yes. you. If you're listening. Yes, on the off chance he's listening, we miss you dearly, and you're killing it in Atlanta. <laughs> killing it in Atlanta. No, but it's exciting. I what I really like about this league, and maybe it's just because I've always grown up, um, where kind of we've had smaller market teams knowing that this team in the NWSL definitely is not small market, but I like how small the league is. And I know there's people that are going to argue with me, but I like that there's fewer teams that that have a chance to battle. So we know that every single week we're going to see a quality matchup. We're going to see quality players lining up across from each other. And we're going to have some really, really good soccer week in and week out. Definitely. That's, that's a great point. That's a great point. And, and you know, hopefully that can help us grow the league, right? By saying, hey, no matter what game you go to, you're going to have national team players out there giving it their all. Sure. And I think it really allows for, you know, a comprehensive understanding of the league as well. Because you try to follow the USL and it's oh, like it's three to four expansion teams each year. And it's and just like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Championship one yeah. and two and and C and right all yeah the usl is great it's it's a lot to follow if you try and follow it all and maybe this can help grow the league because it makes it simple right sports fans at least those that are just starting to learn a sport or learn a league they want to feel like they're understanding what's going on i know that when i was living in panama there were a lot of people there that always asked me why do you like football there's too many rules it's too confusing there's too many teams where hopefully in this sense for those football fans, you can say, hey, look, the NWSL, few teams, you can quickly identify them and understand them. You can know the players. You can know everything that's going on. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Carla, so being a former collegiate player, have you played against or interacted with any of the draft picks this upcoming year? Yes, actually, uh, Jasmine Jackman, I got to know um, when I was playing at BYU, I was the West Coast Conference leadership representative, and she was at the time playing for Santa Clara, which is also in the West Coast Conference. It's one of the top conferences uh, for women's soccer, and and Santa Clara traditionally has been one of the top teams 
um, is is traditionally a top t- one of the top teams in the country. And I she was also the WCC leadership representative. So I was able to spend an entire um, week. I should say almost an entire week uh, with her at Portland, just discussing what we can do to make our campuses more uh, diverse, what we can do to make our campuses more encouraging of those that are different, what we can do to encourage, um, what we can do to encourage student athletes feeling comfortable. Um, and so I actually got to know her really well. Uh, the number three draft pick also, and I'm going to mispronounce her last name because I just met her. Um, but Jordan, uh, DiBiase, I apologize if I said that incorrectly. Again, she's one of those people that you just call on a first name basis. I had never met her before. And then last year, her and I were both bridesmaids at one of my best friend's wedding. I know that sounds so incredibly random. So it just demonstrates how small the soccer community is because, one day you're playing against each other. Like BYU played against Stanford multiple times. I played against her multiple times. And then the next month we're like both co-bridesmaids, like, you know, making sure that the flowers get enough water and making sure that all the photos look nice. Like, it's so funny how small the soccer community really is. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's about the extent of it simply because, um, I was, I'm, I'm older now. So, so many of these, women (laughs) seem so much younger to me, but it has been fun that a lot of the women who are currently playing, um, I was able to play with. So for example, Sydney Miramontes, I actually remember going one V one against Sydney. Um, when I was playing BYU ball against Nebraska, um, some of the players that play on other teams, obviously my former teammates, Ashley Hatch, who was the rookie of the year, her first year, Michelle Vasconcelos, um, just to name a few are still playing. And so it, and so the community really is small. You do get to know everybody. And, um, if, if you don't know them personally, you have played against them at some point. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what's it going to take to get Ashley Hatch to Utah? (laughs) (laughs) That is a question for Laura Harvey. I can't, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to tell you. I will say, uh, congratulations to Ashley. She just got married. Um, went to her reception to celebrate with her. And I was talking to her husband and he was saying the same thing. He's like, oh, I, I, you know, he's living here in Utah and he's as supportive as, as can be. And so he's been flying out to Washington every so often to go support her. But you can't tell me that in the back of his mind, he doesn't think it would be easier if she were here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and, I, and I apologize to Jordan if I mispronounced her name. I didn't. I didn't. In no in no way mean to. She was a lovely bridesmaid, and it was wonderful to get to know her. And she's one hell of a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> Do you two see any sleepers? Anyone who's going to have a real breakout season on the Royals this year? Ooh, good question. Good question. Um. I do think Kristen Press, I I shouldn't say breakout because she had a great season last year. I mean, she came in and made an immediate impact, but I, I think she is a player that gets even better with time. I think the more uh, comfortable that she feels, I think she's going to be even better. And so again, that's not to say that she didn't play well in the last season because I thought she did great. Um, But I think she's really going to stand out this season simply because she's not coming to a team in the middle of the season. She's, um, she can start from the very beginning of the season. And I think that's going to help her a lot. 
I've always been a Sam Johnson fan. I was a fan of her before she even came to Utah Royals FC simply because she just has a fight to her. And I think it's going to be a very similar thing where she was successful playing in Australia. And when you have success playing overseas, I think you can take some of that confidence and use it as a springboard into the next season. Preach. Preach. All right. What about you, Daniel? I am really excited for the new lady from Spain that we are getting. Um, why am I blanking on her name? Vero. Yeah, Vero. There it is. I'm excited. I mean, I've seen some of her highlights. Um, I don't know as much about her as I probably should, but from what I've seen, I think that's going to be very, very good to add to our team as far as what she's able to do. And so I'm excited to see what she can add to URFC. It's good to add another attacking element, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it's because she's very attack minded. And even if you were to put her in what is maybe traditionally a defensive position, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying, hypothetically, if you were to, I think she would still be an offensive presence because she would be willing to move the ball forward. Definitely. I think she's really going to connect that midfield, which is something that I think uh, was really lacking last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And 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 I think that's it's all in the details. I mean, all the NWSL teams are so good that it really comes down into the details of um, – it comes down into tiny things like how attack minded is a team and how conservative is a team. And I think depending on who you're playing against, uh, you have to switch it up. But for the most part, I think being attack minded has always um, been an advantage to the women's game. Mm -hmm. All right. Is there anything that y'all want to end with? I don't think so. I want, I do want you to add in the podcast. Um, we are so grateful for the work that you're doing. We're so grateful that you are bringing these stories to life, not just of those, not just of us and the people who are speaking, but also the stories of the women who come onto your show and make them, uh, give them the exposure that I think that they deserve as well as help fans see that they're, they're real people. I mean, they're incredibly talented, uh, when it comes to playing soccer and they're incredible, amazing young women, but they're people too, and they're relatable. And, uh, the best way to support them is by coming to their games. You were so kind, Carla. So kind. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, we wish you both the best as you, um, you know, inch closer to the end of the semester. I know grad school is painstakingly hard. (laughs) <laughs> thank you and, yeah. and and good luck to you too I mean it's not just grad school I think any any sort of study demands sacrifice and discipline so good luck to to both of you as well without a doubt thank you all right thanks for listening to the Utah Royals FC show everybody have a good night